Hey, Jerry Walker, class of 93. Here with the Left Coast Pirates. You guys doing a great job. We appreciate what y'all doing out there. Just west of the Ward Place Gate from San Diego, California. He is Mike Dizzy Deziri, class of 2001. I am Tommy Chilkoharski, class of 1997, and we are Left Coast Pirates. Hello, Michael. How are you doing today? What are you doing to me, Tommy? It's, it's summertime. I'm supposed to be sitting back by the pool, catching some San Diego sunshine, and you got me with the headset on again. What are we doing here today? Michael? There is no off-season for us, especially when we get the ability to interview someone who's deeply connected to the program. I understand that, but I mean, I, I have my downtime too, Tommy. Come on. The podcast does not wait for anybody. Especially when we're going to be a top 10 program in the country, right? I mean, what is what Andy Katz has us up to seven right now? Up I to love seven. Andy Katz. Come on, get out of here. I mean, they took, what, like a poll of like 10 people in the know when we average out to a top 10 rating for the preseason polls. I love it. I, the, the hype is exciting. The recruiting trail is picking up, but I mean, I, uh, the, the, the fall can't get here any sooner. Well, let's talk to someone who's going to be there game in game out and see what this team can actually do. He is a color commentator and play-by-play -play announcer for pirates, biggies basketball on AM 970 in New York. He is 17 years of play-by-play experience. Experience calling minor league baseball, currently covering the Buffalo Bison, the Toronto Blue Jays AAA affiliate. And welcome to Left Coast Pirates Live, Dave Popkin. Dave, how are you today? I'm doing great. How are you guys? Doing well. Thanks for joining. Dave, we appreciate taking some time out. It looks like you've been announcing for the Pirates for a long time, but before that, Mike has a little personal question for you, if you don't mind. Well, your basketball broadcast it. days go all the way back to the late 90s when you started off uh, for the Northeast Conference on the radio. So how did you get start working for, for Mammoth out of the, uh, the short conference down there? Well, it goes back further than that. Uh, when I was at the University of Miami, I sent my tape to uh, my local cable guy in Mammoth County, where I was from, and he put me on the air based on that. Uh, and one of the things, one of the assignments was Mammoth football. It was like the first or second year of the Mammoth football program, period. So I did a couple TV games, and then they decided the next year they were going to start a radio network for the first time. And they asked this guy, John Anderson, the producer, who should they hire? And he recommended me, and I went in and got the job. And uh, it, was a, it was a fun couple of years uh, for Mammoth. I grew up watching those games. I was, you know, from the Shore area, and remember Dave Calloway as a player long before he was an assistant coach and the head coach and uh, and a lot of those those guys that he played with. So it was, uh, it was a fun experience. I grew up in the Shore Conference myself. And in 1995-96, the Hawks made a crazy run through the NEC Conference Tournament. And they won their last two games by one point to make the NCAA Tournament. I was in high school. I was glued to the radio listening to that miraculous win at Ryder. Can you walk us through that experience of calling that game and, and then eventually the championship game of the It was a crazy year. And by the way, so you're the one that was listening. <laughs> um, no, it was awesome for me because uh, it was really my, my first big exposure. Uh, I had gotten on ESPN once as a fluke when I was in college. But other than that, um, 
this gave us a lot of uh, attention because of how exciting those games were and how quirky they were. I got on WFAN a couple of times, uh, like they would play my calls and stuff. And, and down the stretch, it was like a team of destiny. Uh, the semifinal was at Marist, and that was the loudest gym I've ever been in, ever. <laughs> like, and I've, I've done over a thousand college basketball games. And that was the game where Mustafa Barksdale had the four-point play for Mammoth, and Maris missed a shot at the end, and Mammoth goes to the final, and it was, you know, a great game. And then, you know, Mammoth goes and and beats Ryder, I guess, in the final, and Quincy Lee had some clutch free throws at the end. I just remember like people storming the court and like literally jumping over our broadcast table because they were so elated. You know, it was their first trip to the tournament, and people were really, you know, behind the program in the Shore area, and. It, it was a likable team, John Geraldo and Corey Albano. And it was just, uh, it was a good group. The Mustafa Barksdale call kind of is what jumps out to me the most. When he makes the three-pointer, there was so much background noise for the, like you said, the atmosphere in the crowd. You didn't know that he had gotten fouled. And then all of a sudden you hear in the background, and he was fouled. It was, it was pretty exciting just to kind of be on pins and needles listening to that call as, as it all went down as a, as a young kid. Yeah, thanks. It was, uh, I, I didn't, I don't even think I heard it back until they played it back on the fan. And, you know, they played it and the guys, Mike and Chris were like, wow, that was a pretty good call. <laughs> and I was like, yes. <laughs> a little validation. I was yes. young you know, I was like 25 years old. So, Well, it's always fun to see where guys start. And we found a Mike Breen called basketball game between St. Anthony's and Elizabeth High School from a Sports Channel wow. USA. Uh, so a lot of fun finding that stuff. Oh, yeah. Don Cricky was doing the play-by-play, and when Bob Papa was the sideline reporter, I was like, you got to be kidding me. That's an all-time lineup right there. <laughs> Mike Green is one of my favorite announcers ever. Yeah. Especially for a high school game. Oh, yeah. So after you got your career started, you went on to cover about 11 different sports between radio and TV. What sport and broadcast medium do you find the most enjoyable to do and why? You know, it's tough. It's like saying uh, which of your children is your favorite. Um, I get up for a big football game because it's so much prep and it's like a heavyweight fight. Uh, The games are, you know, there aren't as many games. So each game means more to the teams and it's so much more to learn. So it's, it's like a bigger challenge. Um, so I like that, uh, basketball, I've probably become the best at because I get to do the most. I I get to do like 50 games a year now. So I I like basketball and it's it's fast and exciting and all that stuff. I I think my style is is best suited for baseball. And that's what I came up doing in the minor leagues, uh, because there's more time to talk, you know, conversational, it could be funny. Sometimes in those other sports, it's very regimented. You just have to get to the next play, especially on radio. I guess my two favorites lately are basketball, radio, play-by-play, and baseball, radio, play-by-play. Based on that, can you see yourself kind of broadcasting Seton Hall basketball for the rest of your career if given the opportunity to do so? Yeah, it's possible. I'm a play-by-play guy by trade, so anytime I, I get to do that, I like to do that, like whether it be TV or filling in for Gary or like I filled in for Brown this year. Uh, I've done some, you know, some stuff for other schools. The, the more play-by-play games, the better. But I, Seton Hall has been so great to me, and I really enjoy it. And working with Gary has been fantastic. And, you know, being somebody that's versatile and that can do play-by-play, color, sidelines, whatever, has made me more valuable or it's let me work more anyway uh, in the business. Yeah, I love my longstanding association with Seton Hall and a lot of the people there. So as long as they'll have me, I'll do it. 
Well, you mentioned Gary Cohen, and he's truly a Seton Hall fan favorite. What's been the experience like working with him? It's great. I mean, it's uh, it's a master class for sure. I mean, he does two things, and I think he's the best at both of those things. He does, you know, baseball on TV, great. And I can't point to somebody that does play-by-play basketball on the radio better than Gary. So uh, to be around that and to see how he prepares and how he thinks uh, is great. Uh, I think one of the reasons we get along is that I kind of had the same philosophies and, and grew up listening to a lot of the same people that he did, like Marv Albert. So it's not a stretch for me. Like it was kind of my style anyway, like the way that he broadcast. So, and I could think along with him, like if he's doing the play by play and I'm doing the color, I know what he has to get in and I know when to lay out and when I can jump in. So it's been, it's been a good mesh and yeah, I've definitely learned, learned some things and it's been fun. And we have, you know, a lot of commonalities off the air too with food and music and and other things. So it's been enjoyable. Do you think the specifically the baseball connection really helps you guys mesh well in the, in the booth, understanding that you, like I said, have that similar type of background? I think so. And uh, I actually, as a, like a quirky little side story, I interviewed Gary before I met him. I was in Sioux City and the manager of our team out there uh, was a guy named Ed Noddle. And he had been Gary's manager in the minor leagues of Pawtucket. <clears throat> so Ed put us together. And I had like a general interest talk show before the minor league baseball game. So I had him on at least once, maybe twice on those shows. So I, you know, I kind of knew him through that. And then I met him uh, like the year after that, when I was doing the Cubs AAA games, I met him at Wrigley Field. So I kind of knew him a little bit before we got together. And yeah, I mean, certainly when, you know, we're off air or even on air, we can, we can talk about baseball or or have a a common vocabulary. So here's an interesting question that always kind of hits me is I've always observed that the color commentator tends to be some type of an ex athlete or an ex head coach within that sport. And you've always kind of been in the broadcast career path and yet you find yourself kind of doing color next to Gary. Do you feel like that kind of holds you back in any way? Do people kind of question your ability to do the role because you don't have that on-court experience? How would you address that if someone kind of were to put that question to you? Sure, sure. Yeah, I would say that it's not common. It happens maybe 20% of the time where you have like a non-coach or a non-player that that does color. But I think particularly for basketball on the radio, there is not that much room to talk anyway. <laughs> so there's I, I see my role as being very varied. People are so used to seeing the stat monitor on a TV game now and the score crawl and so much that goes on. Like people are spoiled by having all that. And on radio, you don't have all that. So, you know, Gary, I'll give you X and Y and this person passed to that person and they scored. And then I have to immediately put it in perspective and give people the run, give people the the trends on rebounding, give people the things that they would normally see on the TV monitor. So that's part of it. And then, you know, we've had use of a replay monitor the last couple of years, which is obviously helpful. And, and then I can act as, as the instant replay, as you would see on TV, which, you know, sometimes we'd be, uh, you know, stretching a little bit because we're blocked at courtside. Coach Willard is right in front of us. So sometimes, you know, honestly, we can't see 100% of what's going on. So, you know, to be able to recreate, you know, something in instant replay fashion, quote unquote, is much harder, one, when we're blocked and two, from memory than being able to physically just watch the, the replay monitor. So that's part of my role, too. And then when Seton Hall hired me uh, initially, and this is 17 years ago, they wanted to 
uh, get away from what Warner Fussell was doing, even though Warner was a fantastic announcer, one of my favorites. He would do the whole game by himself, and it would get it would just be one voice, you know, the whole time, the pregame, the halftime, the postgame, everything. And they wanted a more varied broadcast. They wanted a little by-play, you know, a little back and forth to discuss some strategy at the end of the game and to, uh, you know, whatever. So this gives Gary a break and that, you know, I can do part of the pregame. I do a lot of the postgame. I do almost all the halftime uh, interview people, stuff like that. So they wanted a, a broadcaster, quote unquote, that would be able to handle a lot of those aspects of the show, like the highlights that we do, are pretty involved. You know, I'd say a former player probably couldn't do like an 18 highlight post game show the way that we do it. So there are, you know, whatever you lose in uh, strategy, you know, we, we, we gain, I think, on the broadcast by, by me doing some of these other things. Now, you mentioned you've been with Seton Hall for 17 years, 16 seasons, if I'm not mistaken. And you've seen three different varied regimes, if you will, with all the coaches that we've had. Describe the contrast in interacting with all these varied personalities. I mean, Coach Orr, Coach Gonzalez, and Coach Willard couldn't be more different. I concur. <laughs> uh, dealing with Lewis was great. Uh, Coach Orr I had a very good relationship with. I was still pretty young in the business, and he was very kind to me. And I got to spend time with him because at at that time, a TV coaches show, and it was on Yes. So it was like a natural for me to do it instead of Gary because of the Mets thing, uh, I think. So a couple of years, two, three years, I would do, you know, maybe 10 or 12 coaches shows uh, with Coach Orr, go up to his office or go to Walsh Gym, something like that, and get to hang out a little bit. And uh, we developed a nice rapport off of that. And then we would have him, uh, you know, on a pregame show. And he was very easy. You know, he was very easy to work with, very uh, unassuming. A lot of religious references, as I remember, in the pregame show, you know, which is, you know, good, I guess. It was great for him. And it was, uh, he's just, you know, he did it his own way. And he, he had a gravitas, like the guys that responded to him. He was a former NBA player and, uh, and a good dude. And I think he, he may not have had like five-star talent all the time, but he did a good job with developing big men and just developing players in general and developing the guys as men. You know, Bobby came in and it was more of a, you know, a recruiting heavy thing. And he had a, you know, 180 in personality. You know, I mean, he was a very extroverted and, you know, whereas Lewis was, was pretty secure with himself. I think Bobby was always like a little paranoid, like who's out to get me. Uh, and just like, very driven, just very driven and very uh, excitable. I don't know, just a different guy. Like he, he knew a lot of basketball. He knew more basketball than most people I've ever met. And I wouldn't be surprised, you know, if he gets a, a coaching job at some point. He's been out a long time. He's been doing clinics and speaking and TV and different stuff like that. But I wouldn't be surprised if somebody gives him a chance because he, he knows basketball really well but i think there were just some just some elements of his personality that ended up wearing thin you know with, with some of the decision makers or uh or whatever well, i've heard, heard that bobby you know, bobby could make coffee nervous back in the day i mean that's that's how agitated he was and how emotional he'd get whether it be a, a press conference or just any kind of interaction you know with, with yeah the public. yeah and i mean he was good with the media generally like he was a good quote and he knew uh he knew his players and he knew the league and and he was uh he was always an entertaining interview and, and willing to do it. So we appreciated that. And I would say like, you know, 95% of the time I got along with him, which I think is a pretty high ratio if you ask anybody else, you know, that dealt with him. Um, but it was, 
you know, it was fine. It, it was fine. It was just, uh, I think the combination of, you know, his really strong personality and us not going to the tournament were, were big factors. And then you go to coach Willard and uh, it took him a little while to build it, but now he's really, you know, got it, got it going great. And, and it's, uh, it's a juggernaut, I think. You know, I mean, kids want to play for him. Uh, they they want to go and play with the type of players that he's brought in, like Powell and Kale and, and Sandro and all the guys. Uh, it's a good culture. They know they're going to go to the tournament now, which never used to be the case, obviously. And uh, so it's he, he's an excellent coach, and, uh, you know, he's, uh, he's good with us. So speaking of all, we were witness in their tenure to two dismissals, and kind of one tenuous situation with Coach Willard at the end of the 14-15 season. How do you remain objective during that coverage, knowing that you're also a representative of the university in those moments? Sure, sure. I mean, our job is to do the game generally. We just report on who's there, who's not there, why they're there. Uh, I would say that over time, we have, I guess we've seen enough and we have enough credibility that, you know, we can comment a little bit and and the school never questions, you know, the type of stuff that we say on the air. And I think we always, you know, are respectful and keep it in check and know who, who hires us. It's Seton Hall and it's Learfield IMG and we're part of the team and we go on the team plane. So it's, it's different than a network broadcast, but we give our opinions. And, you know, if there's certain situations, I don't think there's been any situation that I can recall where, you know, somebody has been suspended or asked to leave the team or anything like that, where we disagreed with it. I mean, you want to, you want to set a positive culture for the program and Kevin doesn't put up with stuff and I don't blame him. He doesn't have to, there's somebody else that can take their place. Like there's nobody that's irreplaceable uh, except for maybe miles Powell. And, uh, (laughs) and you know, I think that he's done it the right way. You know, he's done it the right way. And um, I, I I don't think we've gotten into any situation, Gary or me in, in 16 years where uh, we've had to feel like one, we've had to pull any punches or two, the school has came to us and said, Hey, can you, can you tone it down on whatever, you know, either criticizing an official or uh, criticizing a play call or, or whatever. We, we just kind of know that balance. You know, mentioning coach Willard, even he can run hot and cold on some of the post game interviews you do with them. And we, we try to tune into as many as we can. And for his mild-mannered a guy, he, he kind of can give you the – he can become gruff with you. How do you adjust with those moments? How do you maintain your professionalism? My goal is to maintain a good, positive, long-term relationship with Coach. Um, and I think that um, doing an interview that close to the end of a game, you know, you could be upset. You could be wound tight. You could be, you know, mad at the officials. You could be, uh, you know, upset that the kids didn't execute something that you drew up. I mean, whatever the reason. You know, and if you just you give them a question that, that hits them wrong, sometimes you get a bad answer. Um, and that's part of what makes it, you know, a must listen. Like usually he's funny and he's candid and he's easy and um, and there isn't any conflict. And I would say that's 90 something percent of the time, you know, but sometimes, you know, sometimes he's testy and we just have to roll with it and go on to the next question and uh, and try to, you know, try to keep our head and, and know that you know, that it's, that it's not personal. Yeah, it was interesting. We were, Tom and I were talking about a couple of the broadcasts in the post game. It was, I think John Fanta was kind of filling in since you were doing the play-by-play while Gary was out. And he's talking to John about, you know, where the speakeasy, they're going to hang out and grab a drink out and Marquette's going to be for the next stop. And and then a couple of games before that, he's he was really kind of just not in the right state of mind after they lost a tough, tough game of Providence. I think you let off with a question about what were your thoughts and 
as Tom said, he got a little gruff. He, he snapped right back at you. You know, I think he kept your composure and you kept moving on, but he, it was a complete 180 between those two specific broadcasts. Yeah, I mean, sometimes it's me. You know, sometimes it's it's my style in that uh, I was always taught kind of leave it open-ended and let the subject talk about what they want instead of like me being super specific and like be questioning him on his coaching. You know, I'm, I'm try, I try not to do that. I mean, I'll bring up, trends or game situations or particular players or try to find, you know, try to just really steer the conversation in a good direction for him. You know, my, my goal is, is to get information for the fans one and to make him look good. That's my goal. Um, so if I just kind of leave it open-ended, you know, it's up to him to kind of pick up the ball and roll with it. And, and sometimes he doesn't want to. So that's, that's cool. You know, whatever. Um, I get along with coach great. And, uh, and I don't think that, uh, you know, there's any issue. I mean, he's close with John because John was, you know, on campus every day for four years and interviewing him and the players. And, and John, you know, is fantastic and he's a hustler and he's he's there. Like, so the guys always see John and, and they're real comfortable with him. You know, they only see me on game days generally. I mean, I go to a couple of practices, but John would be around those guys all the time. Um, so, you know, there's a, there's a different kind of relationship that's built. Uh, it's like baseball. Like baseball is much different. You know, I have long-standing relationships with players, coaches, trainers, stuff like that, because you're around people every day. You know, like football, you might see people once a week, you might see them twice a week, and that's only seasonal. Um, it's it's very different d- depending upon the sport. Yeah, we we had John on last season, and we told him he's the hardest working man in sports right now because he was calling us from a, a a layover in Omaha. So he he's pretty impressive. You know, recently though, we've had this big run of success, so it's probably been easier than not. But but for about a decade, we had down years we had rebuilding years we had whatever you wanted to call it how challenging was it to remain optimistic of the program and and just the games in general during that time it's a challenge but again like we're not there to do a talk show and to do too much historical perspective like you would on a show like this we're there to call that day's game and most of those teams even when they didn't make the tournament or maybe they made the nit or they didn't um, most of those teams had winning records. So when we would leave the gym more often than not, it was on a win or it was on a loss to a game. They didn't really expect to win. Like the ones that hurt are like the games at the end of the, I guess the 15 season, like we lost at home to Rutgers then you go and get blown out at the Paul and that's a team that like won 20 games and expected to go to the tournament. That's hard. <laughs> I remember that being very hard because everybody had, higher expectations and there was some talent on that team Jordan Theodore and her Pope and some other guys there were some injuries on that team that that derailed them as well I think that that would have been like the good year to break through and they didn't so that was hard I remember you know some of the trips back home late in the year were kind of tense so that that gets but we just call the game like when we're on the air we call that day's game and we don't get, you know, too much into the other stuff. So in that vein, what are some of the highlights that stood out that created lasting memories from your perspective? Well, the first year that Gary and I did it, uh, beating Arizona and getting to play Duke in the second round was very excited. And we were like, Oh great. You know, we'll get to do this every year. (laughs) And then it was like a 10 year wait. (laughs) That's what we were saying Um, here too. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure we, uh, and it was it was just fun because, you know, we were interviewed a lot on other stations and other newspapers. And, you know, it was a little bit of a, a thing that Seton Hall was back in and we won a first round game. And 
and that was a, a great team to be around. I mean, I'm still friendly with, with Andre Barrett and John Allen, you know, obviously Kelly Whitney was on that team. So that was a fun team and uh, a good coaching staff. You know, uh, Brian Nash was on that staff. John Dunn was on that staff. Billy Garrett was on that staff. Uh, and those guys all went on to, you know, coaching success in other places as well. So that was cool. I mean, Wichita was definitely great. You know, finally broke through, won a tournament game, beat NC State. Desi kind of gave it all in that game. Didn't have much left for the Kansas game, but like kind of willed them to victory. It was like a validation, you know, I think for the staff and for the program that, you know, this is a, an ongoing concern. You know, this is, this is something that in a positive way that, you know, this is a program that's going to make the tournament, it's going to win some tournament games and they nearly won the next game. It was an exciting game. Angel had the game of his life uh, against Kansas. Uh, so that was a, that was a fun couple of days. You know, there were a lot of highlights. There were a lot of highlights. Donald Copeland's senior year. I liked that one a lot. Uh, he kind of willed that team to the tournament. They won some big games. Uh, this was Lewis's last year. Won some big games on the road at Pittsburgh, at Syracuse. Those are really exciting wins. And those are like good guys to root for. Like you root for Donald Copeland and Grant Bill Meyer and those kind of players. They were just, you know, good people, good people. You want them to, to do well and to win. So, uh, you know, I was happy for them that they were able to pull off a couple upsets and kind of get into the tournament that year, even though they lost in the first round. So there were just a lot of great moments, you know, certain, certain wins, certain times off the court. Um, there, there's so much over, over 16 years. So staying in the theme of, of great moments, Tom and I agree that you and Gary do a great job of being professionals and ultimately avoid kind of leaning too much towards that Homer side of the call. So when Isaiah Whitehead leads Seton Hall to that victory in the biggest championship game at the garden, how do you guys not get caught up in the excitement of the crowd and become fans of the moment? Cause we listen to broadcasts from all the other, you know, teams across the big East, whether it be the student radio station or even some of the professional calls and they blur that line all the time. How do you guys avoid that? It's just part of our ethic. We know that we're on nationally on Sirius XM and there's people listening to the game that might not necessarily be Seton Hall fans. We'd listen, you know, we're on in New York. People are fans of every team, every league, people from all over the world. Uh, and people are used to a professional broadcast in New York. There's not a lot of homerism in the market and it, it turns us off. Uh, I don't mean to speak for him, but I, I'll speak for myself. It turns me off. When I hear a lot of these other, um, you know, broadcasts where the the color guy is screaming and stepping on the play-by-play guy and the and the play-by-play guy saying us and we and um, rooting and and all this stuff like that does work well in some markets, some small markets and some other markets. Uh, you hear it a lot in uh, like local NFL broadcasts, uh, local college sports broadcasts. Um, not as much in the NBA. It, we just we don't do it that way. You know, we weren't brought up that way. And I would say that over time, we have actually shifted a little bit more toward the pirate side, you know, like almost in the beginning, it wasn't 50, 50, but it might've been 60, 40 on like the information and the excitement and stuff. I would say that in recent years, it's maybe become 75, 25, you know, on the amount of information and the amount of excitement that we give toward Seton Hall and, you know, maybe the officiating and some of the other stuff, just because we've been with it so long and and we like coach and we like the, this group of players. Like this year's group of players was by far 
my favorite. And obviously a lot of close, exciting wins and all that stuff, but just good dudes, you know, like off the court, you could have a conversation, you know, with a Miles Kale or Miles Powell or Sandro talks to everybody and uh, a lot of the guys, you know, and it's, it's refreshing. You know, you don't always see that um, in pro or college sports where the guys will interact with fans, they'll interact with us. Um, so it's easy to root for them. And, uh, you know, we don't root overly, overtly, you know, we're, we're definitely, uh, definitely pirate blue. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, I had to hear some of the uh, Maryland Seton Hall game on the radio this past year and the Maryland announcers, I mean, we, us, it was just, it was painful to listen to as, as a pirate fan. It was probably painful to listen to as just a sports fan listening in, not having a rooting interest. And this year, maybe you'll have a little conversation with them. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, Johnny Holiday's been doing the games for about 50 years. So I think he's got it <laughs> figured out pretty well what, what works in that market. But one thing you said triggered, uh, triggered a memory for me uh, about that Isaiah Whitehead uh, game-winning shot in the Big East tournament. And that was one of my favorite moments. Uh, it might have been my favorite moment. And, um, and Gary had a great call on it. And then we let it sit. We let the crowd go. And I said, that ball sat on the back of the rim for 23 years. Because that was the last time that we won the tournament. Yep. So it was, it was a good combo of like, he had a big call. You could hear the crowd go nuts because it was a pro Seton Hall crowd at that point. Because, you know, all the Seton Hall and neutral people were rooting, were rooting for us against Villanova. And then I kind of tagged it, tagged it with that. So that was a, a memorable moment. And then at, really outside afterwards, it was like we won the national championship or something because the band was playing out in front of the garden and, you know, I, I stayed in the city. I didn't stay over in the city, but I just stayed in town because there was such energy. Um, you know, I ended up seeing like fans and assistant coaches and um, alums and all these people that I knew like on the street and in bars and all that stuff after that win. I stayed for a couple hours and it was just like for that night, Seton Hall owned New York. It was cool. That's excellent. Now that you said that I uh, talked about last year's team, a lot of it's coming back this year. And we've got plenty to be excited about with Miles finally officially announcing that he's coming back. How excited are you for this upcoming season? On a scale of one to 10, about 11 and a half. <laughs> so you're not as excited yeah, I mean, as we are. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's, he's, he's the best Seton Hall player I've seen. Um, and I mean, I go back 30 years. I mean, he's, he's as good as Terry to hair, you know, or better. Um, wow. Dave, he, you're, you're, you're going blasphemous now. We're going to have to stop you now. We're going to have to end this. T Terry's in a different plateau. <laughs> Tommy. You got to be careful here. Yeah, no, no. I mean, I, I, I love Terry and I actually did games in the league back then as a student at Miami when he was playing at Seton hall. And, um, and he's obviously, he's done broadcasting with me. Uh, on the air and, uh, and I'm friendly with Terry and I think he's awesome and he's, he's probably the best, but, um, but I think miles is just sometimes he just takes it to another level from almost any college player that I've seen, you know, he just, the expanding a three point line is not going to affect him. Obviously he's, his drives to the basket, you know, were a revelation to some people, but not really to me. Like I got to see him every day, the first couple of years. And, you know, people would say, with all the talent on the team with Angel and with Kadeen Carrington and with uh, Desi and with people would say, who's the best player on this team? And I would say, Miles Powell. And they were like, what are you talking about? He's the fourth option, blah, blah, blah. I said, you don't understand. He just, he has another level. He has another level of talent. So uh, it'll be intriguing to me how he meshes what the NBA wants him to do, which is obviously 
ball handle more, pass it better, play better in transition, and be a more well-rounded combo guard than just be a scorer, than just being you know a six-two off guard, which might not translate at the next level, which is you know why he probably would not have been drafted in the first round this year. So it'll be interesting to see how and if that changes the team, how and if that changes how Quincy McKnight plays, how Miles Kale plays, what their roles will be. I mean, I think whatever happens, the team is going to be good and win games, obviously, but but that's that's a dynamic that bears watching. And the other is the schedule. This is the toughest schedule that Seton Hall has played in my memory, uh, certainly since I've been there. And, you know, even before that, I, it'll be like a, a top 10 schedule, I think. It's depending upon how those other teams finish up, obviously. But um, it is, it's a juggernaut, you know, of, of really good teams. I mean, the just just Atlantis, the teams out there would help the, uh, would help the computer rankings, uh, would help their Ken Palm, would help everything. But, you know, some of the road games and the Michigan State game and then how good is the league going to be? I think the league is going to be better this year. So that's going to help as well. So even though the team will be better because mostly everybody's back, I think it's kind of a harder road because the schedule is so difficult. So just to let you know, we interviewed Desi Rodriguez a few podcasts back, and he actually agreed with your assessment on Miles. We asked him who was the best player that he played with at Seton Hall, and he threw Miles' name out into the mix, considering he played with all those great names as Carrington and Delgado and, and so forth. And, and he threw Miles' name right to the top of that list as well. So uh, you're, you're not alone with your assessment. The one thing that I'll note about Miles and about Desi and about Angel is that under Kevin Willard, these guys get, get better every year. Like Angel Delgado got better every year, and then he got better again in the G League. He was like, you know, one of the best players in the G League, and he just continues to improve. So he brings in guys that, one, want to work and are coachable, but two, the coaching staff is, you know, is skillful enough to develop these guys and add a skill, you know, add, okay, this guy's a, a good two-point shooter. Let's make him a three-point shooter. He's a good three-point shooter. Let's make him a better free-throw shooter. He's a, you know, and they keep adding and adding um, so that, you know, you get a guy like Desi that came in and was not that heralded a recruit. He's gone on to, to become a pro player, you know, and that's that's due in large part to the, the culture and to Coach Willard. So, Dave, you mentioned some of the, the schedule. People would say that, putting Michigan state on the schedule, potentially the number one preseason team by the time they come into the rock in early November could be the best marquee matchup that Seton hall faces since way back to when North Carolina came to the, the Meadowlands ranked number three in the country, this entire collection of the schedule, the, the opponents we could play, does it make the experience on your side of the broadcast more rewarding that, you know, we're, we're taking our schedule to that next level and you're actually broadcasting games against national blue bloods. No, absolutely. And I think it helps, it helps them with recruiting. It helps with visibility of the program. It's obviously going to help with attendance. Um, to me at a school like Seton hall, uh, and I do some collegiate consulting as well, like on the marketing side um, for a couple different entities. And I've always told people that at a school like Seton hall, where men's basketball is the most important sport attendance at those games is the rising tide that carries all ships. Your sponsorships go up, your ticket sales, it, it becomes a more scarce ticket. So people want it more and the games become more exciting and the players feed off it. So the winning percentage goes up and it's just all those, it looks better on TV. 
it just the whole perception of the school rises. And when you, one, have a good team, but two, bring in top-notch opponents like that, I mean, they'll have to open the upper level for Michigan State, you know, and maybe for some of the other games this year as well, as, as you know, as powerful as this team is expected to be. Uh, that kind of thing not only drives revenue to support the whole athletic department, but it drives so many other things. So if you can get that going and kind of keep it going in, in, a, in a positive direction and, and, uh, and continue to grow that attendance, I think that's, that's big. And even if you, you take your lumps in one or two of those games by bringing in a big opponent, I think it's worth it long-term because those games ended up being watched games on national TV and a draw, you know, like physically a draw for people to come out and, and experience your program. So you made a call saying that the, that Isaiah shot sat on the rim for 23 years. We've been waiting for something for a bit longer. Do you think this team has the capability to challenge for the Big East title this season? I don't think there's any doubt. I think they'll be picked first. Maybe Villanova gets, you know, ekes them out in the preseason poll, which doesn't really matter, by the way. But let's say they do. Uh, then maybe Seton Hall's pick second. Uh, but I, I think that they can win the league in the regular season and or the tournament. That being said, I still think that some of the, you know, way too early quote unquote preseason predictions uh, are too aggressive regarding Seton Hall. I saw Andy Katz pick them seventh, um, which is flattering, but I don't agree with it. Um, somebody picked them 10th. Um, I saw 11th. I saw 15th. I, I, I think they need to go and prove it a little bit, you know, before we see that. It's just based on so many returning points and rebounds and minutes and, and people just look at Miles coming back and say, okay, he's a, he's a guy that can carry a team, which is true. But I, I think, you know, I think top 10 is, is too aggressive uh, of an expectation for this team. I mean, if this team is in the top 25 all year and contending for the league title, that's a huge step forward and a huge win for the program. And, you know, and better than we've been in a long time. So I, I, that would be my expectation. If it, if it goes beyond that and, you know, the team ends up in the Sweet 16 or, or something like that, great, you know, great. And, uh, and they will have earned that, but I want to see it first. Well, Tom and I are always saying that the, the biggest road for us getting over that hump of being a top five type seat is that January swoon they go through. From you being kind of a firsthand observer to that repetitive process over and over again, What's it going to take this year to avoid that specific type of breakdown as they progress through the season? I think this group of coaches and players has learned a lot uh, over the years as to when they really need to go for it and play a guy 40 minutes and when they don't and when they need to practice full and when they don't and can just do a walkthrough. Um, and I think that they're, they're starting to, to figure that out you know, through, through some of the things that you talk about. And I think that, you know, just being judicious, you know, with, with, with the way guys are, are used because they end up playing a lot of games and practice starts earlier. So they're practicing all summer by themselves anyway, and in small groups. And then, you know, you start in, in early October and, and you're rolling through and you're not done until sometimes late March. It's like a pro schedule. And these guys are young, you know, they're like 19 or 20 years old. A lot of them haven't been through it before. And it's a lot and they're going to class and they're practicing and they're flying to Creighton, you know, in the middle of the night and they're flying to Xavier in the middle of the night and, and all these multi-hour flights that it's like a, a pro toll on your body. So, you know, I think that, you know, you learn from, from all those things, the guys, you know, take it seriously and, 
and they need to to get their sleep. And I think you won't see it as much this year because the team's going to be deeper. You know, you bring in Tyree Samuel, uh, Obiago will be a huge factor in that. Not only will they block shots and be a presence and all that stuff, but he'll play minutes, right? So that's, let's say he plays 20 or 25 minutes a game. Then that's fewer minutes than some of the other front court guys have to play. They'll be fresher in the game and then over the course of the season. So I think you'll see the deepest Seton Hall team that we've had in many years. You know, Anthony Nelson's going to play a lot. Jared Roden's going to play a lot. You know, it's going to be a challenge to find these guys minutes. It's not like some seasons where you come down, you're like, you know, we really only have six guys that you can trust to, to, uh, to play. It's like a starting pitcher. You know, if you can pull a starting pitcher after 80 good pitches in six innings and then put in a bang, 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 one, two, three good relievers, that's a lot more effective than you know, the guy's hanging on, you know, with two outs in the eighth inning, you know, and he's winded. So um, that, that's something to look for. To be honest, that's my biggest concern is how do they how do they find a way to not use Miles for 35 plus minutes? You know, as as we go through this gauntlet of a schedule, that, that's my biggest concern. Yeah, I think that he, you know, he needs to be out there to to grow the lead at some points. Like sometimes they'll get the lead and they can go for the jugular if he's in the game. You know, he can go on a little run and then boom, the game's over and then you can use guys, you know, or there might be a close game at the end and you just have to leave him in, you know, because you want to win the game. But, you know, there might be some other points where where you can give him a rest, you know, and you can you can play road and you can play some of these guys that really started to come on at the end of the year. I mean, all these guys had their moments like for two thirds of the season, Quincy McKnight was a really pleasant surprise and, and won them some games, you know, so he's got to play, especially when there's a, a good offensive player on the other side that, that he needs to shut down. So, you know, you, you throw in this combination of other players and I think they can find him rest. Okay, Dave, we're putting you on the spot. What are your personal predictions for the pirates this year? Uh, I think they would win either the regular season or the conference tournament, not both. Um, it's hard to do both. Many, you know, very few teams have, have done it other than Villanova uh, recently. And, but I think that, you know, would obviously be a big win for uh, the program. And then, you know, Sweet 16, I think, is a reasonable expectation for this team. It just depends on, as you say, can they get a three seed? Can they get a four seed? Can they get a five seed? And avoid some of the geographic, you know, seeding difficulties that they've had. You know, like I mentioned the first year, had to play Duke in the second round in Raleigh. You know, had to play Kansas (laughs) in Wichita. You know, it's just some of these games. Had to play Arkansas in South Carolina, you know, where the, the whole gym was red. Some of these things where, you know, if they could get into... Albany, if they can get into the garden and some of these other local sites this year where pirate fans could travel, you know, I think that that would be a big difference. All right, Dave, before we let you go, we have to make you walk the plank. We've got five rapid fire questions for you. We expect five rapid fire answers. No need to explain or think too long. Are you think you're ready for this? I think I can handle it. <laughs> All right. Okay. Question number one. Best Seton Hall game you've ever called? The Big East tournament with uh, Whitehead and 16. Best player you've called consistently? Miles Powell. If you could be paired with any play-by-play partner of all time besides Gary Cohen, who would it be? Mike Breen. If you could be paired with any color commentator of all time, who would it be? Bill Raftery. What is on your bucket list for an event or game to broadcast down the road in your career? Any major league game, NBA or major league baseball. And just separately bucket list to attend. I would like to attend the masters. Bonus question. 
How many times did it take for you to get Sandro's last name correct? I don't think we've gotten it correct yet. <laughs> I've heard three different pronunciations of it. <laughs> Congratulations, I him, Dave. I him. Congratulations, Dave. You I asked him, and he said, Mamu Kelush Vili. He wants it pronounced that way. Not everybody does that, so that's okay. <laughs> Mamu, so Mamu Kelush Vili, not Kelush Vili? I give up. Excellent, Dave. Thanks so much for your time here. Guys, uh, I've enjoyed it, and uh, we really appreciate uh, you know, all your coverage of the team and uh, look forward to talking to you some other time. So if you've enjoyed this podcast, please listen to our previous podcasts, which include interviews with former players, Donald Copeland, Desi Rodriguez, Angel Delgado, and Jerry Walker. For Tommy Chilkoharski, I am Mike Dizzy Deziri, and you have been listening to Left Coast Pirates. <laughs>